So speaking of country music, in 1998, I got the call from the lighting company that I worked for in L.A. that uh, we were hired to film a music video in the wine country of Northern California. So we shipped our equipment. I hopped on a plane. I got picked up at the airport. And the next day, I spent the better part of a very cold day inside a warm house by the fire, reading my Bible. I was doing a study in First Peter at the time. I remember I was in First Peter. So there I was, reading my Bible, missing my brand new wife, and listening to country music stars Tim McGraw and Faith Hill talk about their children. So picture me, alone in the living room of some stranger's house, warming up by the fire, because I'm always cold, and reading my Bible, And Tim McGraw and Faith Hill are sitting next to me warming themselves too and talking about their little girl, Gracie, while we wait for the rain to stop so we can film. Just the three of us, me, Tim, and Faith, doing our jobs. But it gets even better. That evening, we went and filmed at Harrison Ford's brother's vineyard. So all night long, I kept looking for Han Solo to show up. And guess what? He didn't. But that would have been really cool. The song that we were filming the video for was Faith Hill's single, Just to Hear You Say That You Love Me. It's a duet that she sings with her husband, Tim McGraw. And it was an awesome concept for the video. They were stealing the idea from the 1995 movie, A Walk in the Clouds, starring Keanu Reeves. Perhaps you've seen that movie and you remember the scene in the movie where they wave these translucent butterfly wings by torchlight to prevent that frost from damaging the grapes. Well, that was the concept for the video for Faith's song. So they filmed scenes just like that. But then, in the end, they ended up scrapping it all, and they refilmed the video with just Faith and Tim singing in a studio or in some room. I suppose they ran into some copyright issues, so they reshot the whole thing. But the original idea and what was filmed was really incredible. It was really a spectacular, very uh, spectacular work of art as far as videos go. So you had a very pregnant Faith Hill and her husband, Tim McGraw, singing this love song to each other in this awesome vineyard. They were singing the following lyrics of her song to one another. I'd climb right up to the sky. I'd take down the, star, the stars just to be in your arms, baby. I'd go and capture the moon. That's what I'd do just to hear you say that you love me. I'd walk across this world just to be close to you because I want you close to me. So you have two lovebirds, iconic country music stars, a husband and a wife, singing these words to each other in a vineyard on a cool California night. If that doesn't make you a romantic, then you've got a cold heart, brother. And this is actually exactly what we'll see in our passage today in Mark's gospel. So turn to Mark chapter 11. Only this time, Mark will tell us that the bride does not respond in love to her husband. The bride uh, has other lovers and turns away from her faithful husband. And yet still the husband, Yahweh, the Lord, God, 
Jesus still sings his songs of love in the vineyard to his rebellious people, Israel. And that's the theme of our big idea today. That's the truth that I hope captures your heart today. I want your heart. I've been praying all week. I was up praying this morning. God, capture our hearts again this morning. I want God to capture your heart today with this truth about your Savior, Jesus. That his heart remains dizzyingly and dazzlingly set on you. Jesus wants you to know today that even when your heart is cold, even when your heart is distant, when your heart is hardened towards him, his heart remains always dizzyingly and dazzlingly set on you. That's good news. When our hearts grow cold and when our hearts grow distant, Jesus' heart remains set on us. Warm, tender affections remain. And that's been the heart of God all through the Bible. And that cold heart that I'm speaking of is the heart of the religious leaders that Jesus will have a conversation with today. Their hearts were cold. Their hearts were hardened. And Jesus will tell them that one day their cold and very hardened hearts will actually lead them to murder someone. So Mark chapter 11, look at verse 27 and hear the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus returns once again to Jerusalem, and as he and the disciples are walking around in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes run up to them, and they want to know who gave Jesus the authority to do what he did, what we saw last week in Mark 11 when he cleansed the temple. They want to know who gave him the authority to do that. Who said that he could turn over tables and crack that whip like Indiana Jones? Who said he could break all the piggy banks of the money changers? Who said he had the authority to block the entrance to the temple and keep people out? Inquiring minds want to know. Jesus then responds to their question with a question. I'll tell you what you want to know, but first you have to answer my question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or man? Answer me. So the religious leaders huddled together and they discussed it. If we say that John was a prophet sent from heaven, then Jesus will ask us why we did not believe John and receive his ministry. But if we say that John was just a man and not sent from God, then it will cause a riot because all the people believe that John was a prophet. 
what do we say, fellas? What's our answer? And so they break from this huddle like a family on the game show, you know, family feud. And they come up with their answer to Jesus' question. Um, We don't know. And survey says, Jesus says, well, if you want to answer my question, then I won't answer yours. I'm not going to tell you who gave me the authority to act like Indiana Jones in the temple. Jesus isn't in the business of arguing with the religious leaders, partly because he knows he will always win. And he knows their hearts. He knows their hearts are cold. He knows their hearts are hardened. So what Jesus is doing here and what Jesus will do with the parable of the tenants that we'll look at in a moment, what Jesus is doing is simply inviting them to believe. He's daring them to believe that he is the promised Messiah. But notice that Jesus keeps speaking to religious leaders at the temple. That paragraph division in your Bible between chapter 11 and chapter 12, it might cause you to miss the fact that Jesus is still in a conversation with these guys. When chapter 12 begins, Jesus is still talking to the chief priests and the scribes. So ignore that little phrase in bold print if you have it in your Bible that says, Parable of the Tenants. We're going to look at what has come to be known as the parable of the tenants, but that title, parable of the tenants, is not inspired. The parable is, the parable that Jesus tells here is the inspired, authoritative word of God, but that title is something that English Bible makers add. My point is simply this. Don't miss that Jesus is still speaking to the religious leaders when he shares this parable. In fact, Jesus already knows the answer to his own question. Jesus knows that the religious leaders did not think that John was a prophet sent from God. Jesus knows that the religious leaders did not respond to John's baptism and John's call to repentance. Jesus knows this, and so he will expose their hearts by telling them a parable about how the nation of Israel had repeatedly ignored God's prophets. So now look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. When Jesus tells this parable, he's giving a very brief overview of the Old Testament and the history of the nation of Israel and her relationship with her Lord, Yahweh, the Sovereign Lord. This is OT 101, Old Testament 101. This is like flipping through an old photo album or flipping through the photos on your iPhone. The vineyard is a picture of the nation of Israel and the tenants are the leaders of the nation of Israel And the servants are the prophets and the leaders that Yahweh had sent to the nation of Israel to call them back home to the Lord. In love, Yahweh kept sending prophets to his people to woo them back to him. But every time he did this, the nation of Israel would reject the ones that the Lord sent. Time after time, 
again and again, the nation would refuse to listen and they would reject the Lord's call to return to their first love. And when Jesus speaks of the vineyard here, he is drawing on a very familiar passage in the book of Isaiah. He's drawing on a very familiar passage in Isaiah's prophecy when he speaks this parable and the scribes and the religious leaders knew it. They were very familiar with this passage. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah referred to the nation of Israel as a vineyard. And Jesus is clearly alluding to this passage. He's even using the same words which he knew the religious leaders would catch on to. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So when Jesus is speaking this parable, the religious leaders knew exactly what he was doing. He was exposing their cold and hardened hearts. They knew that Jesus was connecting them to the vineyard in Isaiah's passage. In Isaiah's passage, the prophet sings a song of his beloved who had a vineyard that he cared for. Yahweh, the beloved, cared for his vineyard. He dug it out. He cleared the rocks. He planted the best vines to yield the best grapes. He even built a tower to keep watch over the vineyard and to guard it against any intruders. The Lord did everything to care for his vineyard. But when it came time for the harvest, there were only a few sour grapes. And there's going to be sour grapes for me because I have a curly hair right in my eye. Sorry. Well, here Isaiah is describing God's love relationship with his people. And so is Jesus when he picks up on Isaiah's theme in this parable. Jesus is connecting the religious leaders to this passage in Isaiah. They should have been bearing fruit. They should have responded to the Lord, wooing them back to their first love. But instead, they rejected John the Baptist just like they did all the prophets that Yahweh sent to them. And so Jesus is answering his original question that he asked them in Mark chapter 11, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or man? The answer is that John and his baptism were from God, but he, like all the prophets, were beaten and killed. Remember from Mark chapter 1, we saw John who came preaching basically a message of Yahweh loves you, the Lord loves you, repent, be clean, come home. What was the big idea of John's sermons when he was preaching out in the wilderness? His message was simply, Yahweh loves you. Repent, turn from your sins, be clean and come home. John was calling the nation to turn away from sin, to turn away from living for themselves and to return to the Lord. And in returning, they would be cleansed. But John didn't just preach. John was also baptizing people who responded to his sermons and who wanted to come back to the Lord. He was offering forgiveness away from the temple, apart from the sacrificial system, away from the religious leaders. And this is why John was rejected by the leaders. Because the religious leaders did not like that he was offering forgiveness away from the temple. And this is exactly why Jesus brings up John's baptism here 
It's to expose the cold, hard hearts of Israel's leaders. John the Baptist, through his preaching and through his baptism, was aiming for the heart, not outward religious performances. John's baptism took place in the Jordan River, and it was a call to renewal. It was a call to restoration. People would come and confess their sins and be physically washed with water to signify that their hearts were washed too. It was covenant renewal. They were renewing their covenant with the Lord. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, where the nation of Israel would prepare to meet their God at the spot of their honeymoon in the wilderness. Remember what we saw back at the beginning of this series. The wilderness was the spot of Israel's honeymoon with the Lord. So when John called the nation to repentance in the wilderness, he was calling them to renew their marital vows, to renew their first love. Repentance was meeting with God. They would bring their sin, and God would bring his mercy. He would bring his comfort. It was covenant renewal. God was meeting them at the spot of their failures. John was preaching a baptism of repentance. The word repentance simply means that you change your mind. That's what it means, to change your mind. Repentance is simply having a change of mind and meeting God again and being comforted by Him. That's what John's baptism was all about. That's why he was calling for repentance. Understand this, Grace. Remember, I've told you this before. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. Don't reverse it. The Pharisees wanted to reverse it. The religious leaders wanted to reverse it. In fact, they didn't think they had any any sin to repent of. So when John came along, his message fell on deaf ears. They didn't have anything to repent of. But John came along and he pulled a Romans 2-4 before Paul ever came on the scene. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. It's his kindness that draws us to repent. Repentance doesn't follow or doesn't come when there's hard preaching that slams you with shame and slams you with guilt. Instead, it's as you are comforted by God's word. It's as you are sweetly allured and spoken to tenderly by him. That leads you to repentance. I mean, who knew that repentance could be so sweet? Owning up to your sin and owning up to your selfishness doesn't seem like it would be a good thing. But it is because you get Jesus. Isn't he what you want. Repentance connects you once again with Jesus, your first love. Yes, on the first surface, repentance seems like it would be like eating liver and drinking prune juice. And who signs up for that? Liver and prune juice. Who's having that for lunch today? No thanks. But that's how many of us re- view repentance. But repentance is actually comforting, holding on to your sin and your selfishness, loving it so much, refusing to admit that you've done wrong, that is eating liver and drinking prune juice. That's an awful place to be, 
And that's exactly where the religious leaders were. Repentance happens when you hear it again and you believe in your heart that his heart remains dizzyingly and dazzlingly set on you. That makes repentance sweet. When you see Jesus as the faithful one who continues to love you when you are unfaithful. And Jesus wants you to know today, right now, that even when your heart is cold and hardened to him and distant, his heart remains dizzyingly, dazzlingly set on you. That's good news. When our hearts grow cold and distant, and whose heart doesn't at some point in their life? get hard towards the Lord or cold or distant and pull away from Him? Whose heart doesn't do that often? When our hearts grow cold and distant, Jesus' heart remarkably remains set on us. Warm and tender affections remain. Is that you today? Is your heart hardened towards Jesus or cold or distant, or maybe you just love your sin so much you don't want to give it up. Jesus' heart remains set on you, Christian, with warm, tender affections. Doesn't that make you want to come home to your first love? That was the heart behind John's baptism. That was the heart behind John's baptism and his call to repentance to the nation of Israel. But the religious leaders were not on board, and so they rejected John's baptism. They rejected John just like they did all of the other prophets. But Jesus is not done with his parable yet. He will go on to tell the religious leaders that God would send his beloved son to them as proof of his love. And yet, they would kill him too just like all of the other prophets. So look at verse 6. Jesus is continuing the parable that he's been sharing. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So Jesus quotes Psalm 118 here at the end of the parable to show the religious leaders that they were rejecting God's plan. They were rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for. They were rejecting the cornerstone. And so here Jesus identifies himself as the cornerstone of God's building. And what does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? What is the cornerstone and why is it significant? Well, the cornerstone of the foundation of a building would be the first stone that was put in place. It was the stone in the corner of the foundation that ensured that a building was square and stable. It was a critical stone that ensured that everything was perfect. 
And Jesus is the cornerstone of God's building the church. He is the one who ensures that we are perfect, that we are blameless in his eyes. Whoever believes in Jesus, the cornerstone, will not be put to shame. In 1 Peter, Peter quotes Psalm 118, same psalm that Jesus quotes here at the end of the parable. And Peter also quotes the prophet Isaiah in his letter, who also mentions the cornerstone in his prophecy. So Peter heard this parable of Jesus. He heard Jesus identify himself as the rejected cornerstone. And this idea that Jesus is the cornerstone made enough of an impact on Peter that Peter quotes several Old Testament passages that speak of the cornerstone. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, 6-8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The idea here is that because we are connected to the cornerstone, Jesus, we are perfect. We are blameless. We will never be put to shame. When we trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we will never experience shame. The shame and the guilt of our sins no longer have hold over our lives. As Romans 8.1 says, you know it, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never be put to shame. God will never once come to us and say, shame, shame. Shame on you for what you have done. I can't believe you did that. Shame on you. Shame on you for chasing after other lovers. God will never say that to any of his children, ever. Because we are in union with the cornerstone, the perfect cornerstone, Jesus, the one who has ensured that we are in union with him, connected to him, cemented to him forever. And that means that even when we stand before God one day, he will not shame us. Even when we stand before God one day, he will not shame us. Tom Schreiner says, Just as Christ is the chosen and honored one of God and was so honored at his resurrection, so too believers will be vindicated on the last day. What is true of Christ is also true of his people. They will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, but the glory of approval. The phrase, will never be ashamed, therefore, is another way of saying they will be honored. We will not experience the embarrassment of judgment, which the religious leaders were in danger of experiencing if they ignored Jesus' parable. No, we will not experience the embarrassment of judgment when we stand before God. We will not have a movie of our sinful lives played as we stand before God. That's good news. I don't know about you, but that's good news. You don't want to know what I've done, what I've said, what I've thought. And the perverted, twisted motives behind all that. We will not have a movie of our lives played before the entire world to see when we stand before God. 
Think about it. If a movie of our lives was played for all to see, what a terrible way to start eternity. (sighs) If a movie of my life is played before I enter into heaven, I'm going to be hiding out in heaven for thousands of years. I don't want anybody to see me until you all forget what you saw. What a terrible way to start eternity. We will not have a movie of our lives played before us as we stand before God. And that is proof that God is good and that the gospel is good. Because I have done and said and thought some pretty wicked and evil things in my life. I've said some things that I'm embarrassed of. Done things that I'm embarrassed and ashamed of. I've said, thought, done so, so, so many things that I am flat out ashamed of. Awful things, embarrassing things. I'm surprised I still have any friends. I'm surprised my wife is still married to me. And the good news of the gospel is that record of mine it's all gone. It's gone. Poof. It's gone. Because I am cemented to Jesus in union with him, united by faith to Jesus, connected to the perfect cornerstone by faith. And your shameful record is gone too. If you are in union with Christ, your shameful record is gone. can't find it anywhere. All of the awful, embarrassing things that you have done, that you are ashamed of. Okay, I'm not the only one here, okay? <laughs> Can expose you too, okay? All the awful, embarrassing things that you have done, and you know you have. If you trust in Jesus, if you are connected to the cornerstone, they are erased from your file. The hard drive has been wiped clean. And now, God sees you. When God sees you, he sees his son, Jesus. What is true of Jesus is true of you right now. What is true of Jesus is true of you right now. And that's why you'll never be put to shame. Instead, because of Jesus, you'll be honored on that last day. The honor is yours. It's it's unbelievable what Peter is saying here. We have moved from experiencing shame to being honored if we trust in Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus wanted for those in the temple that day, those who were listening to him, listening to this parable. He wanted them to see that to reject him is to reject the kingdom of God. To reject him is to experience judgment, to experience the judgment that the owner of the vineyard would bring because they killed his beloved son. But the response that Jesus wanted from all the people listening to him in the temple was this. He wanted them to respond with a heart in love for and with God. Jesus is sharing the parable of the tenants in the hopes that people will repent and turn to the Lord. As Kent Hughes says in his commentary on Mark, he says, Jesus further used the occasion to give them what is called one of his judgment parables. The parable of the wicked vineyard keepers. This would devastate them, but at the same time it was gracious. For this convicting summary of God's dealings with his people was meant to reach their hearts. In it, Jesus described, one, the hope of God for his people. Two, the kindness of God for his own. Three, the severity of God. And four, the ultimate triumph of God in history. You may not catch that theme of kindness here, 
Because there's a lot of people getting beat up and a lot of people being killed in this parable that Jesus is sharing. So you may not catch that theme of his kindness, but Jesus shares this parable to reach their hearts. But the religious leaders left instead with hearts so angry they wanted to arrest Jesus and kill him. But Jesus wanted what Isaiah wanted in Isaiah 5. And it's the same thing he wants of us today, a heart in love with him. So let me ask you this morning, are you in love with Jesus? Do you love him? Not perfectly, of course, because who does it perfectly? No one. It's the whole reason Jesus came. But do you love him? Do you love him? Does his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, does that pull you in? Is it pulling your heart in this morning right now? Has his steadfast love captured your heart? Is the work of the cross a marvelous thing in your eyes? Can you sing a love song to Jesus today? Or will you reject him like the religious leaders of Israel? Listen. Can you hear it? Can you hear him? Jesus is singing over you today, Christian. Jesus is singing Isaiah's lyrics. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song. Jesus is singing Faith Hill and Tim McGraw's lyrics. I'd walk across this world just to be close to you because I want you close to me just to hear you say that you love me. Is what the Lord has done in the gospel marvelous in your eyes? And how do we capture that awe and marvel if we've lost it? Certainly not by the law. Certainly not by doing more and trying harder. The Pharisees and religious leaders were already doing all of that stuff and their hearts were hardened. Their hearts weren't weren't captured. They were focused on the law. They were busy doing all these things, but Yahweh was not marvelous in their eyes. Ian Duguid says, the answer to my sinful self-centeredness is not more law. It is not telling me that I need to spend more time in Bible study or that I need to pursue longer quiet times or to endure more rigorous Christian disciplines. The answer to my self-centeredness is worship, beholding the beauty of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees and the religious leaders had the scriptures. In fact, they were really the only ones who had access to God's word. They needed new eyes, new eyes to see the beauty of the Lord. And so instead of having their hearts captured and arrested by the Lord, they wanted to capture and arrest Jesus which they eventually would do, as Jesus said in his parable. They would kill him one day. What we see in the parable of the tenants is vintage Yahweh. The Lord was set on sending his prophets repeatedly to call the nation of Israel back to him. Over and over again, no matter what they did to the prophets, how they rejected them, Yahweh kept sending them to woo the nation His heart remained set on his people. He was dizzyingly and dazzlingly set on his elect people. 
And all of this came to fulfillment when God sent his beloved son, Jesus. This is how much God loves sinners. He gave his son, his beloved son. That's the point of this parable. The point is not some moral. The parable communicates to us who Jesus is and what he is like. He loves us and he keeps pursuing us even when we spurn him, when we shun him, when we push him away, even when we kill him. God loves sinners so much that he sent and sent and sent and sent until one day he sent his beloved son to the same people who spurned, shunned, pushed him away, and killed him. That's what this parable is about. The overwhelming love of God for people like you and me. Fickle, unfaithful people like you and me. As we close, allow me to quote Ian Duguid one more time. He says, Let us bring this closer to home. For Israel is not the only one who has been gloriously loved by God and then proved spectacularly unfaithful. We have turned our backs on the God who gave us life and breath, choosing to pursue our own idols instead. But the Lord does the same thing with us that he did with the Old Testament Israel. He pursues us out in the wilderness of our own making where we end up cold, naked, isolated, and alone, drowning in shame, abandoned by the very things in which we put our trust. There he calls us back to him. He wants you to know that even while your heart has been cold and hard toward him, his heart has remained dizzyingly, dazzlingly set on you. While you have been saying, wow, you are beautiful to all kinds of ugly substitutes, he still looks at you and says, wow, you are beautiful. You are a lily among the thorns. You are one of a kind, and I still love you. Even while you are running away, his loving heart still pursues you wherever you go. His heart remains dizzyingly, dazzlingly set on you. Why not respond in worship, in love today? As our prayer of confession said, Scotty Smith said, the beauty of your grace moves me to grieve the ugly of my sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you continue to love us because we have been spectacularly unfaithful. So enamored by so many things. Looking over your shoulder at other lovers and yet you don't give up on us. You keep pursuing us. I pray that that overwhelming love would draw our hearts this morning. That if there's someone here who hasn't bowed their knee to you, they're resistant, they're rejecting you, God. Would you open their eyes right now and regenerate them? For anyone here whose heart is cold, distant, hardened, may they see your love again and be warmed, and may their heart thaw out because of your great love for all of us, Father. Jesus, for all of us, draw us back this morning. 
to our first love. We would live lives that glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.